You're listening to The Revealer Podcast, where we explore how religion shapes our culture and our communities. Produced by the Center for Religion and Media at NYU and hosted by me, Dr. Brett Crutch. Each month, we sit down with experts to discuss the role religion plays in politics, in people's lives, and throughout our world. Hi, everyone. Welcome to a unique episode of The Revealer Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Crutch. As many of you know, most of our episodes feature a conversation between one guest and me. But we're doing something different for this episode in anticipation of The Revealer's upcoming special issue on religion and the climate crisis that will be published on October 7th. You can read it at therevealer.org. The Revealer's special issue on religion and the climate crisis features articles that explore how a range of religious communities are addressing or ignoring climate change and why. The articles take us to a variety of places, like the lakes of Bangalore, India, once homes to Hindu goddesses and gods that are now literally on fire and filled with waste. The articles also take us across the United States, where religious people and organizations are working to combat the climate crisis. For this episode of The Revealer Podcast, we're chatting with three of the writers for the special issue. One is considering how Latinx Catholics are engaged in sustainability practices and how so much environmental activism is centered around white middle-class Americans and what needs to be done to change that. The second person we're talking to today has been researching the Jewish farming movement in America and how Jewish farming organizations are dedicated to addressing climate change. And the third person we're talking to has been interviewing evangelicals and Christian nationalists about why they deny the reality of man-made climate change. These are but three of the topics you'll find in our special issue on religion and the climate crisis, out October 7th at therevealer.org. So without further ado, let's dig into these important and wide-ranging conversations about religion and the climate crisis. I'm with Dr. Amanda Ba. She is an associate professor of religious studies at California State University, Northridge. She is the author of the book, God and the Green Divide, Religious Environmentalism in Black and White. She also has an article coming out in the Revealer's upcoming special issue on religion and the climate crisis titled Beyond Solar Panels and Priuses, The Overlooked Environmentalism of Latinx Catholics. Hi, Amanda. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Of course. So you've been doing research on overlooked environmentalism efforts among Latinx Catholics. Can you tell us what you mean by overlooked efforts and what are some of the things that you're finding? Yeah, thanks for that question. And the first thing I would say is I don't think I would even quite call them efforts. I wouldn't necessarily call them overlooked environmental efforts Hmm. um, because efforts implies that they're done on purpose. And a lot of the really interesting things that I'm finding are inherited practices and values that aren't really done intentionally for the environment, and yet they have very positive outcomes for the environment. And so I should say this project actually really started out of conversations that I had with my students at CSUN, Cal State Northridge, Hmm. um, and particularly when I first started teaching there 10 years ago. So CSUN is a large public university. Um, It's in kind of suburban Los Angeles in the San Fernando Valley. Hmm. And we're Hispanic serving institute. More than half of our students identify as Latino. More than half are first generation college students. And in fact, 70% of our students um, do not have a parent who graduated from college. 
more than half are eligible for Pell Grants. Um, so this is not the population that we would typically associate with environmentalism in the United States. And so I showed up at CSUN straight from grad school and I started teaching this class on religion and ecology. And I was really surprised because I found out that the students were there because it met a gen ed requirement that they needed and it met at a time that worked for uh -huh. them. <laughs> uh -huh. um, and so they, they weren't interested in environmentalism at all. Hmm. Uh, they thought it had nothing to do with them. And they thought I was the environmentalist in the room because I'm white, I'm middle class, highly educated, progressive politics, right? You know, I'm all the things that mm -hmm. line up with their preconceived notions of environmentalism. Um, and, and in my first couple of years, I really did struggle to figure out how to connect the class to things that were important to them and to make it interesting and relevant for them. And what happened was through class conversations, we figured out these things together. Hmm. Um, and particularly through this set of assignments where I would have the students do some sort of action related to environmental sustainability and then kind of reflect on it and how it how it relates to their own lives. And, and I will say at the beginning, I was thinking, you know, the reflection would help them think about how they could become, could become more sustainable. And so they would take, you know, a carbon footprint quiz online mm -hmm. or track their garbage or mm -hmm. track their food and where it came from. And I should shout out my colleague, Whitney Bauman at um, Florida International University. These were his assignments that um, he shared with a bunch of us at a conference and they're great. But so what happened is that they do these assignments and I did them as well. And then we would come to class and talk about the results. And hello, it turns out that their lives are way more sustainable than mine. You know, they huh. thought I was the environmentalist and they're not. But, you know, I live in a house that has three bedrooms and my family has two cars. And when it's not mm -hmm. a pandemic year, I get on an airplane many times a year. Mm -hmm. um, whereas my students are riding public transit. They, mm -hmm. you know, live in dense urban housing. A lot of them have never even been on an airplane. They recycle, you know, they don't use the air conditioner because they need to keep the electricity bill low. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, that really, really kind of shifted all of our assumptions in the classroom about who is the environmentalist. And, and that led to some pretty challenging conversations because there were a few students in particular that wanted to insist that it has to be done on purpose for it to be environmentalism. Hmm. Um, so, you know, the idea would be like, when I recycle my cans and I put them out on the curb, that's environmentalism. But, you know, when my student's father takes them to the recycling center to get the refund, that's not environmentalism. They're just doing it for the money. Huh. Um, and, and we've really duped it out in the class. And, and I, I think, I hope that I've convinced most of them that that counts too, right? That like, it, it's not that my acts are more virtuous because they're quote unquote for the environment. Right, uh, right. But, but these are the, the overlooked environmentalisms that I'm talking about. Yes. Um, and it was these class conversations then that along with a few other things led to the project that I'm doing now. So once I started the research project dealing with Latinx Catholics, I started hearing many, many similar stories. Second generation and beyond in particular, these young adults that I'm talking to, they're, they're very familiar with air pollution and climate change and the Pacific garbage patch. But that's not what they're talking about when I ask them if their Catholic faith speaks to environmental issues. So like earlier in the conversation, they might have talked about climate change. But when they start telling me about their Catholic environmental values, they start telling me stories about mom who taught them not to waste food hmm. or, you know, growing up poor and eating a mostly vegetarian diet. I have this great story from somebody who told me about when her grandma had died in Mexico they all went to the grandma's house, you know, were packing up everything that she had, and they found brand new pots and pans and all this kitchenware. And they said, you know, why was she using all this old stuff that's falling apart? Yeah. Um, and, and the young woman was telling me, you know, with, with a lot of pride, 
my grandma, she lived like she was poor in that village, even though she wasn't. She would mm. use things until they're literally broken. Mm. So, so there's just kind of this culture of moderation and respect and just using things until you can't use it anymore. And I'll say one more great example that's come up over and over has to do with Tupperware. So it's come up in a shocking number of conversations where people tell me, you know, we don't use Tupperware. Like, why would I buy Tupperware when I have these perfectly good yogurt and butter containers and takeout containers sitting Um, around in my house? uh And then my students actually shared with me that this is an internet meme. And if you look it up, so there's a picture of a container of I can't believe it's not butter. And it's got like green salsa in it. And the meme says, well, of course it's not butter, it's salsa. (laughs) So what I'm seeing is this whole set of home-based conservation measures that look very, very environmental to me. Yes. But my students and my informants never really thought of them as environmentalism. Right, right. That's great. I I love all those examples. And now I want to sit in on your classes. Um, (laughs) So I'm curious then, how are you connecting these practices that you're learning about to Catholicism or to communities of Latinx Catholics? Why are some of these things like caring about food waste, reusing products, the treatment of workers, etc.? Why are you finding that those are things of importance to some of the Latinx Catholics that you're meeting? Yeah, so the stories that they're telling me are, are the things that are important in their own lives. So in my research, the Latinx Catholics that I'm talking to are primarily those who choose to worship in Spanish. So they mm. might be bilingual and, you know, live in very, you know, English, English language worlds in their jobs and go to mm-hmm. school in English. But when they worship, they worship in Spanish. Mm. Um, so this particular population, you know, they mostly have parents who are immigrants or at least grandparents who are immigrants. And so and they're coming from particular backgrounds um, where, where they did experience many of them experienced hunger as children, or at least their parents experienced hunger. Um, so they food waste in particular, you know, people have just talked about how shocking it is to see people throwing away perfectly good food because they remember being hungry or they know that somebody in their neighborhood is hungry if they yeah. aren't. Yeah. Um, and, and a lot of these particular issues like caring about food waste and the treatment of workers are coming from second generation bilingual churchgoers. And they're yeah. often talking about um, their parents' experiences in Latin America and kind yeah. of these nostalgic stories of these, um, you know, there's parents living this nice earthy lifestyle back home um, oftentimes their parents you know, gave them very strong values to really appreciate the things that they had. Um, so they'll contrast that with, you know, Americans are so wasteful and picky, mm-hmm. uh, but my parents taught me to appreciate the things that I have. Mm-hmm. Um, so generally this kind of, this notion of moderation and respect. And, and then also particularly having to do with food waste and agricultural workers, um, they're, they're drawing a lot on Catholic social teaching. They'll tell me this is just basic Catholic social teaching. I had one group in particular who kept saying, Laudato Si, the Pope's encyclical on climate change and the environment. Everybody yeah. thought that was so exciting because now the church is finally talking to environmental issues. And they're saying, no, this has been just basic Catholic social teaching for a really long time, hmm. um, calling attention to things affecting the poor and the vulnerable. And, and then just one other thing that I've noticed now that I've been, I've been pouring over my transcripts over and over again in the last several months. Um, and it's really been striking that my interlocutors are thinking about nature in a very particular way. So whereas mainstream environmentalism often is positioning nature as a place of leisure and recreation, you know, a place you go to escape everyday life, right? You take a vacation to a national park or you go kayaking and yeah. um, hiking, etc. And then you come back to your regular life and you're rejuvenated. 
But throughout these conversations with Latinx Catholics, and the, hiking in particular, they do, they do reference. Um, but much more often, they're telling me about the nature that surrounds them in their everyday lives, and it's connected to work and agriculture. So it'll be, you know, my mom raised me with plants everywhere. Our house was full of plants. And my mom taught me not to pick a flower because that would kill the flower. Hmm. You know, my grandpa grew up in Mexico and he depended on the rain coming on time. Or uh, particularly one group that I met with who are all immigrants, you know, a lot of them come from rural villages and they talked about like, oh, I grew up on a farm and I saw a cow being born and that really marks you. So, mm. so the ideas about nature that they're talking about are not national parks or places you go for escape. It's the, the nature that surrounds their everyday life and personal and family experiences. Interesting. So what recommendations do you have to help make environmental activism less white-centered and better focused on multiculturalism and religious diversity? And I guess beyond that, what do you think will happen if those shifts take place? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So the best model that I've seen of really diversifying an organization comes from Faith in Place, the, the organization I studied for God and the Green Divide. And they had this model, a couple of really important things. First of all, they, when they want to do outreach to a particular community, they found it extremely important to hire people from that community. Mm -hmm. So they didn't want to send in, you know, get some nice recent college grads to go start trying to organize on the you know, south side of Chicago, yes, right? Yes. They hired somebody who grew up on the south side of Chicago. Actually, she didn't grow up there, but she, she has long, long roots there. Um, so that's, that's key. And then the idea that they did was to go around and just talk to the people in the community that they're trying to serve and find out what they're interested in, and then connect that to the, the issues the organization was interested in. So connecting it to environmental issues. Um, so when Veronica Kyle started at Faith in Place to do African-American outreach, um, she spent like a year just meeting with people, mm. um, going to churches, talking to people and, and finding out what was important to them. And the two main things that kept coming up over and over were food, like healthy eating and jobs. Mm. So lo and behold, the first two programs that she developed had to do with sustainable food and healthy eating mm. and then also uh, green jobs. Mm. And, and it was extremely effective. Um, she built a very, very diverse organization doing that. Mm. Uh, I have a great quote from her in the book. It was something along the lines of, you know, when I first arrived at Faith in Place, I couldn't just show up and talk about solar panels. Mm -hmm. But now I can talk about solar panels. Wow. So she started by building these relationships yeah. and then can connect them to other things sure. rather than just showing up and be like, hey, guys, solar panels, yes, right? Yes. So that's, that's a model that I would love to see other environmental leaders and organizations following. Some long-standing environmental organizations have been very effective with their organization and um, outreach models, but those were developed in a certain demographic, right? They're in, developed in middle-class white communities, and thinking that you could just take that same exact thing and just take it somewhere else doesn't really make a lot of sense, right? That, you know, I think listening to people, thinking about your sources of authority, expanding our ideas of what environmental knowledge might entail. Yeah. And, and in terms of what I what I think would happen or what I would hope would yeah. happen. I could say what I have seen happen in my own classroom is that decentering these stories of white environmentalism has led my students to see themselves much more as environmental leaders mm. and environmental mm. agents. So they might come in thinking, you know, 
this is just something that white people care about. This has nothing to do with me. But then through through thinking about these these differing notions of environmentalism and their relationship to it, they realize that they have a lot of knowledge and can be wonderful leaders and resources. I have one student in particular who, who has a really interesting story. She was a religious studies major. She was in my religion and ecology class. And you could just see kind of the light bulb going off in her head throughout the class. Like she'd, she'd never thought that her, she was Catholic. She never thought that her faith had anything to do with the environment. But throughout the class, she started like having memories of like, oh yeah. And she actually mentioned um, her church youth group was named Robles de Justicia, Oaks of Justice. Mm. Um, And she's like noticing this nature language and like, oh yeah, we actually go pray in nature a Mm. lot. And then after she graduated from CSUN, she went on to pursue a master's in social work. And her capstone project ended up being this whole environmental justice and a couple of youth communities. Anyway, so she does this whole environmental justice project. Um, and she shared with me the write-up, her, you know, her, her master's thesis yeah. from it. And it starts with her story of environmentalism and that she was raised with these things and these values in her whole mm. life. And, you know, her father grew up on a farm in Mexico and he grew things. And then he brought that to Los Angeles and they grew things in her backyard. You know, and he, every Christmas Eve, he made this oven in the ground and he roasted the corn in it. And so she has this whole environmental narrative about herself and is interested in being an environmental justice leader in her community. And that was always there, but she had never thought about it that way. That's great. And those are very powerful stories. Well, thank you for this. This is all very helpful. And um, I appreciate the great work that you are doing. I'm with Dr. Adrienne Crone. She is an assistant professor of religious studies at Allegheny College. She has an article coming out in the Revealer's upcoming special issue on religion and the climate crisis on the Jewish farming movement in America and how Jewish farming organizations are tackling climate change. Hi, Adrienne. It's great to chat with you. How are you doing today? Hi, Brett. I'm doing good. Glad to be here. Great. Me too. So some of our listeners may be surprised to learn that there is a Jewish farming movement in the United States. So what exactly is the Jewish farming movement? Yeah, so most of my research focuses on what I tend to call the contemporary Jewish community farming movement, which started in about 2004 with the founding of one of the farms, Adama, at Isabella Friedman Jewish Retreat Center, and um, which is in Connecticut. From there, through some of the training that Adama did with, with 20 and 30-something fellows, the movement expanded all over the country and into Canada um, and all over the world, actually. There's a farm in um, the United Kingdom. There's a farm in Australia now. And because these these fellows were, were learning about sustainable agriculture and Jewish traditions around agriculture and social justice at Adama, they wanted to do something with that. So a lot of them ended up starting other projects. But Jewish farming in the U.S. is actually a much bigger, more historical movement. There were farmers in the early days when when Jews came to the U.S. A lot of people in in the early centuries of the United States didn't do what we would maybe call farming today, but certainly had home gardens and chickens and things like that in their yards. But in the late 19th century, in the 1880s, a number of Jews came from Eastern Europe and formed what they called farm colonies which was a specific terminology that described these farms 
based on common purposes and common ideas um, and, a, and a shared goal, which was to kind of live together and grow food together. And a lot of that was based on wanting to be self-empowered, um, which was not necessarily available to Jews in Eastern Europe in the 1880s, where mm -hmm. they were facing a lot of violence and persecution. And so there were different organizations that helped settle Jews to be autonomous and self-enabling and growing their own food and having their own land and hmm. running their own lives. And that also happened in what was then British Mandate Palestine. And there they tended to be called kibbutzes mm -hmm. or kibbutzim. Um, and a lot of those remain in place today, where the movement in the U.S. kind of faded as the next generations moved back into the to the urban centers. And so it sounds like now that there's a newer, younger generation of Jews who are reclaiming this idea about Jews coming together in community to work the land, to grow things. And now the focus is more on not just enabling Jewish communities to thrive, but a particular concerns over social justice and climate issues. So I'd love yes. to hear you talk a bit about some ways that these Jewish farmers and Jewish farming organizations are working to combat climate change. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the farms look really different. So there's some farms that have hundreds of acres and there's some farms that hmm. um, have an acre or so or no land at all and kind of move from place to place within different uh. urban areas. But in each case, a lot of what they do in their farm spaces is Jewish and often non-Jewish education around climate and environment and local ecology and sustainable agriculture practices. Very few of the farms have organic certification, but all of them use organic practices. And that's because organic certification mm. is quite expensive. <laughs> but they're mm -hmm. often using the the organic fertilizers and things um, that that don't kind of harm the the local ecology as they grow food. And so from the very basics of how they're growing food, but then talking to their communities about buying locally or, you know, eating uh, more plant based food because mm -hmm. of some of the carbon impacts of meat and also processed food that's coming from further away. But in addition to that, a lot of the farms, especially those that do have a significant amount of land, have done a lot of what we might call like regenerative work on the land. So replanting trees, replanting hmm. local plants that can revive ecologies um, that were maybe taken over by, hmm. in some cases, monoculture farming, where people tend to grow just, you know, corn or wheat or soy yeah. um, over and over and over again. And so kind of rebuilding that soil, rebuilding the local ecology and bringing back some of that um, ecological diversity, which in some cases is focused solely on land restoration. But at one of the farms, Shoresh uh, Jewish Environmental Programs, which is in and around Toronto, Canada, 
they have planted trees, they've planted local um, flowers in a lot of cases, because what they're trying to do specifically, um, in addition to rebuilding um, and reforesting, which helps with carbon <laughs> emissions, if you if you plant more trees, we, we hopefully lose less carbon um, into the atmosphere. But they're also trying to rebuild a pollinator population that has diminished because of because of large-scale monoculture farming and industrial fertilizers in the water and in the ground and changes in temperature and things that have affected um, bee and other pollinator populations in the area. So it looks different at different places, but usually there's at least some level of education about climate and about how food and climate are connected. Interesting. So I'd love to broaden out just a bit to get your take on, you know, beyond Jewish farming and beyond the Jewish farming movement. Generally speaking, what are some Jewish ideas about climate change or environmentalism? And what are Jewish communities doing today about climate issues? Yeah, absolutely. Most of the Jewish ideas about climate and the environment start back in Genesis in the, in the Hebrew Bible or the Torah with this idea that God created the world and then God created humans and humans were supposed to steward creation and they were supposed to take care of the earth that God created. And so a lot of Jewish conversations and educational programs about climate or the environment start there and say, you know, this is something we should be paying attention to because it's one of the first things that we get from God. And it's not it's not yeah. optional. So it's ingrained. Hmm. And then it's throughout the Hebrew Bible. This year, uh, this Jewish year that started on Rosh Hashanah a couple weeks ago, um, it's actually a year called yeah. the Shemitah year, which is a biblical set of laws related to a year where the land itself was supposed to get a year of rest. So the same way that humans get to rest after six days of work on the Sabbath or Shabbat, Jews were also commanded to let the land rest after working it for six years. And so these kinds of stewardship ideas are built into not just that initial story in Genesis, but throughout the Hebrew Bible and how Jews and or the ancient Israelites, in the case of the Hebrew Bible, were supposed to relate to the land that they were on. And so a lot of that comes into the modern conversations and modern education around climate issues, where what we see is that we as humans, um, and particularly humans in the West, have not done a great job of stewarding this planet and are major contributors to climate change. So Jewish farming is one way that Jews are kind of thinking about this, but there's a lot of other related movements. There's Jews participate in a national movement called Interfaith Power and Light, where synagogues all over the country have put up solar panels and worked on renewable hmm. energy sources to, to power Jewish spaces like synagogues or hmm. Jewish community centers or uh, Jewish private schools and places like that. So Jews are addressing climate issues in a lot of different ways. Um, and food and farming are one of those ways. Great. Well, thank you for all of this interesting information. It's all very helpful for us. And thank you for this important work that you're doing on religion and the climate crisis. 
I'm with Dr. Robin Veldman. She is an assistant professor of religious studies at Texas A&M University and author of the book, The Gospel of Climate Skepticism, Why Evangelical Christians Oppose Action on Climate Change. She is also the author of an article on Christian nationalism and climate change for The Revealer's upcoming special issue on religion and the climate crisis. Hi, Robin. It's great to chat with you. Hello. Nice to be here. So right now you're doing research on connections between Christian nationalism, the large movement of people who want the United States to be a more avowedly Christian nation, and anti-environmentalism or climate change denial. So while Christian nationalists share a political commitment, they come from a range of religious traditions, including some evangelicals, some conservative Catholics, and some Pentecostals. So I'm curious, how would you describe broadly Christian nationalist perspectives on climate change? Yeah, so actually that is kind of the question that I am trying to figure out. What I've noticed is the, the ways that some evangelicals have connected their religious beliefs to climate denial or skepticism parallels what you see among some Catholics. And I kind of eventually happened upon research showing that Christian nationalism extends beyond, it's it's heavily evangelical, you mentioned in the intro, but it's like 55% evangelical. So oh, wow. there's a lot of evangelicals, but there's yeah. about 20% Catholic. So, you know, I was trying to understand why people sometimes connect religion to climate attitudes. And I was seeing that it's a lot of evangelicals, but also a percentage of Catholics. And that's why, that's how this whole thing started. Um, but there's a lot of connections that I've been digging into uh, that don't really add up to the big picture at this point. So, I mean, I've noticed people who promote this Christian nationalist version of history that America's founding fathers intended for it to be a Christian nation, for example. Mm -hmm. Some of them, like David Barton, have been active promoting climate skepticism. Uh, And then uh, David Barton has collaborated quite a bit with Glenn Beck, and Glenn Beck uh, has, there's this Christian nostalgia, the sense of persecution. So you see these Christian nationalist ideas, and he does he has appeared on documentaries that David Barton has created, same documentaries that talk about climate change. So I guess what I'm seeing is not necessarily that people are intentionally saying, if you think it's you know this country was founded as a Christian nation, then you can't believe in climate change. No one like there's no direct connection in that way, but it's sure. kind of. these overlapping discourses where if you're involved in one stream, you're going to encounter the other. And then I think over time, people start kind of weaving their own connections to them. Interesting. So part of what you write about in the forthcoming Revealer article is about the role of media and conservative media in shaping the views of Christian nationalists. So what role has media played in shaping many Christian nationalist perspectives on the environment and on climate change? (laughs) These are really good questions. And that's why I've been going over transcripts of uh, Glenn Beck's radio program. He's somebody I've ended up focusing on because he did quite a lot related to, there's a conspiracy theory uh, related to Agenda 21, which is the United Nations Sustainable Development Plan of Action that was passed in 1992, I think, at the Rio Earth Summit. It's a, so there's this real sustainable development you know, set of goals hmm. that the, even the United States has you know, signed on to this. Hmm. But um, back in 2013, a number of conservative slash right-wing groups started jumping onto this idea that Agenda 21 was 
uh, a pretext for the establishment of some kind of global government, mm-hmm, <laughs> which mm-hmm. is a sort of longstanding fear, you know, the loss of national sovereignty mm-hmm. in these circles. And so the environment really gets pulled into this, this conspiratorial sphere right around 2013, which was also a time of very high levels of religious climate skepticism, which I've seen in surveys. Conservative media is very involved in, in this story of spreading fear and misinformation about climate change. So you mentioned that white evangelicals make up a sizable portion of people who get labeled Christian nationalists. And you wrote an entire book on on evangelicals and climate skepticism. So I'm curious, what are some of the main reasons evangelicals in particular have been so resistant to working to improve climate change? Good question. (laughs) I'll try to not spend an hour responding to that. Uh, So I think the way that I've come to think about it is that there's kind of a long picture and then there's a short-term picture. And I think in the long run, the biggest factor is the fact that evangelicals who used to be sort of politically disengaged or voted for Democrats transitioned Mm -hmm. into the Republican Party increasingly after the late 1970s, you know, through the Mm -hmm. 80s, 90s, and 2000s. And over that time... The, trend, the tradition integrated a lot of values, especially related to uh, free enterprise and, you know, capitalism, those kinds of things. And they also kind of imbibed this anti-environmental perspective that was sometimes circulating within those same discourses. So there was a, a longer stage or a longer process that, that set the stage, I think, for, for climate skepticism. And evangelicals also have this historical... Um, tendency to interpret things on an individual level because they believe that personal relationship with God is kind of the primary Mm. unit for thinking about how you solve social problems. Mm. So in the longer term, you know, people always want to say like, oh, it's all just politics, maybe just even a side effect of politics. And I want to say it's the the ways that evangelicals have become, you know, come to see themselves as their identity identity being linked to political conservatism, which is means that their attitudes on things are kind of a fused mix of religion and politics that can't clearly even really be separated, I don't think. Mm. Um, but in the short run, one of the, to me, most fascinating parts of the book was discovering how many leaders who are active in the Christian right have been really active in promoting misinformation about climate change on their radio and to a lesser extent television programs. So Mm. there was a point where there was a a push from some evangelical environmentalists to move climate change towards the center of the agenda. And that created a, a essentially a backlash campaign among leaders in the Christian right, where they got really, instead of ignoring the issue, which they had sort of more tended to do for the decades leading up in the 80s and 90s, mm-hmm. they got much more heavily involved in promoting climate skepticism. In the larger context, a lot of political elites and their opinions as they are filtered through media shape everybody's attitudes about climate change, mm-hmm. and including evangelicals. But the sense that skepticism or some people call it denial, is the biblical position on climate change, took active messaging and effort on the part of leaders in the Christian right. So that's the part that I see them connected to. Right. So then for listeners who oppose Christian nationalism or who are concerned about evangelical rejection of a scientific consensus about the realities of man-made climate change, what might you suggest anyone who's listening do to try to combat these trends 
to help the country do more to address the climate crisis? Yeah, that's the million dollar question. <laughs> um, I mean, I really like the suggestion, uh, you know, like Catherine Hayhoe is a big voice in the evangelical mm-hmm. community who talks about climate change. And she really encourages people to just, if you are somebody who's concerned about this issue, and you're a member of the faith community to talk to people about it, because part of the issue, part, part of the problem is that people, there's all this kind of tribalism where people are like, oh, someone like me can't believe in X, Y, or Z. And when you see other people taking leadership and saying, no, I do believe in this. And, you know, there's folks I know here at A&M who are Christians and also believe that, that you know, understand the science and understand that it's changing. And um, so there's, I think people in the faith community, especially in the evangelical community, have a really important role to play. Mm. Uh, and I also have seen just the incredible surge in activism that is taking place on the right, which is not necessarily directly anti-environmental, but I think given the extent to which conservatives borrowed techniques from the civil rights era to sort of build their movement, I think that liberals really should be, or people who care about the issue of climate change, which isn't necessarily just liberals, um, should be thinking about what kind of institutions to build and how to, you know, create a larger movement. At the end of the day, being involved in politics is really important. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for all of this. Your research is very important and very helpful for all of us to make sense, make better sense of people who continue to deny the realities of climate change. So thank you for this important work and this conversation. That is all the time we have for this episode. Let me formally thank our three guests, Amanda Ba, Adrian Crone, and Robin Veldman. You can find their articles and others in the Revealer's upcoming special issue on religion and the climate crisis out October 7th at therevealer.org. I'm Brett Crutch. I hope you'll join us for our next episode next month. We'll be discussing religion and the CIA. In the meantime, I hope you stay safe and healthy.